Hi everyone. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to let you know that enrollments are now open for my 12-week transformation program, Stepping Out from Behind the Smile, How to Stop Pretending and Start Thriving. This program is for anyone who feels like they're stuck on the hamster wheel and would love not only some support, but some practical tools to create a life that you no longer want to escape from. If you'd like to know more, you can drop me a note through my website, ashbutters.com, or DM me the word smile on Instagram. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviors in relation to mental health, trauma, and addiction. My name's Ash, and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. My guest today is Australia's foremost blues musician, Ash Grunwald. Ash is a renowned singer-songwriter, having released 11 studio albums and has been nominated for five ARIA awards. He's graced the iconic Blues Fest stage a whopping 10 times and is currently travelling around Australia on his Madhouse tour. With his new album, Blues Fest Studio Sessions, coming out this November, Ash is one busy man, and I'm super grateful that he's made the time to join us here on the show today. So dialing in from beautiful Byron Bay, I'd love to welcome Ash onto the show. Ash, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? Very good. Thanks, Ash. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited for this conversation. Your beautiful wife, Danny, is a friend of the show. She came on back on episode 26. And when she mentioned that you might have some time, some availability to come and join me, I was just super stoked for the opportunity. I I know a little bit about your story. I know that the audience today is going to get a lot from hearing everything that you've got to share. So once again, just thank you for, for being here and for your time. Awesome. I would love to kick off our chat today just getting our audience a little bit more familiar with who you are. So can we start with some top line questions? I mentioned you live in Byron Bay, but let me know where exactly. What does an average day look like and what do you do for fun? Well, I surf for fun. and nice. I, never, I can never surf enough. Um, I just love it so much. Uh, we live about uh, 20 minutes north of Byron, actually. Um, Gorgeous. And, uh, yeah, really nice part of the world. Uh, we've got National Park pretty close to us and, um, you know, just cruise down the end of the road and have a surf or, or straight out the front. There's beaches out the front and we're on the beach every day. Uh, for me, when I'm home, that is, because I live half my life on the road. Um, and that's also super fun, though. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that's me. And uh, I'm pretty happy to say that one of the things that I do for fun is play music, which is so weird. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah. I've just been in this last week going through a, a new um, setup and spending all this money and trying all this different stuff with electronics and different things. I won't bore you with the details, but tearing my hair out, doing some new stuff. And it's all self-induced. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I've just spent about three grand and, and tearing my hair out, doing all this technical stuff for something that might be in one song live, you know, um, <laughs> but that, I do that kind of stuff and have always done that kind of stuff because I'm just so into it. So, um, yeah. That's amazing. So you've been playing music professionally for over two decades, right? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I decided, like, I grew up, um, my parents had me really young and um, they worked really hard. My dad's a builder. Um, and my mum was stay-at-home mum and she also worked with my dad on the building sites and they ended up having five kids, but I was the first one when they were teenagers. Oh, wow. 
Wow. And um, I grew up on building sites. And um, then I worked in every trade while I went to uni and I got qualified. I wanted to be a script writer at first, but then um, I also got my teaching degree and became a, a teacher. And, um, you know, the one thing from working so many manual labor jobs and then working as a teacher, I knew is I didn't want to work a day job. <laughs> and mm. um, so I was before that, you know, 20 years ago, I started as a professional musician, but really I probably started about three years before that when I never had an album out. 20 years ago is when my first album was in the stores. And, uh, but I was already a professional musician because my ambition wasn't to be known or any of those other things. It's, it was actually just to, you know, live the life I wanted to live, cruise around in a van and go surfing and play music and not work a day job. <laughs> mm. And, and uh, it's been awesome. And I've worked, I work r really hard at, um, at doing that thing that's really fun so I, I think all things are like that like you know sports and I'm sure Hollywood actors and anything that you think oh that'd be good to do that those people generally work double as hard as somebody who works a day job or you know yeah I, it, yeah they live it, and breathe it right yeah. yeah you have to really have so much passion and and work so much at it that it's not it's not even a job it's just what you do um, to do those things, I think. Yeah. Who were some of your musical influences growing up as a child? Was there anyone particular in your life that really sort of paved this path for you or were there particular artists that you looked up to? Uh, well, my granddad, I, you know, started playing. He had a little back room that he used to go record. He was also a builder, but um, he never got to really play professionally, but he recorded his own music and made his own music. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. He's a really like interesting character um, and he had a, a zest for life and was always learning. He's definitely a lifelong learner, um, not your stereotypical builder, um, whatever that means because, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of builders out there who self-educated and keep educated themselves too. But um, I know what you mean though. We kind of think of like the Aussie tradie, don't we? With the, yeah. yeah. There's yeah. that stereotype for sure, yeah. for sure. And he was from um, South Africa um, and wow. we're very um, am black South African and that's the thing, um, that was one side of my um, culture. They're called the Cape Coloured people. They're mixed race people and um, they still, that, that word coloured sounds so weird in Australia mm. and it sounds racist like the racist country that South Africa was that they, they were fleeing. Um, but anyway, that's just like part of my cultural background that um, maybe influenced me to get into black American music, which was um, blue, mainly blues music. Um, so I just wanted to be a blues player. Blues wasn't very big in Australia at all. And that's why my um, aspirations were quite humble. Uh, and that was fine. I was happy with that. But then like 20 years ago, that whole um, roots music thing came along with um john butler and xavier rudd and the waifs and the cat empire and all those bands so i hitched a ride on that being, yeah, great. being um a young guy of the same age at the time and um and that was what propelled things further and um i was really just i'm being just so fortunate with everything that's happened since then can I ask, Ash, did you have any sense of feeling different or apart from as a result of having this South African heritage? Oh, yeah, when I was young, for sure. Mm. It was a much more Anglo place to Australia. Where I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne was the only immigration was English. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's a little bit of a difference there. And um, I just felt proud and I think... When my family came out, I think they still had the white Australia policies. So they used to mix up um, people who are, like say if you're an English immigrant, they'd treat you one way. If you're a European immigrant, they'd treat you another, but uh, black or Asian, I think they treated a bit differently and they split people up a bit more. Mm. Um, I don't know. Um, but anyway, so my my dad and all his brothers all married Aussie girls and just integrated into normal Australian society and but we're just proud we were brought up to be proud of our heritage as well of that mm. and just join in and 
yeah, it, was, it wasn't like trying to be different in any way, but, you know, sometimes I'd get teased at school or whatever, occasionally going, oh, you choco. That was the name back <laughs> in the day. Um, but God, was, kids can be cruel. Yeah, it wasn't really a, a big deal. A few little, um, few little um, you know, incidents and scuffles and stuff when I'd go to a new school or whatever. But, yeah, it wasn't really a big problem. Yeah, yeah, all right. Ash, at this point in the show, I normally ask my guest to share a photo. And I talk about this being a photo from a, a time in your life where you are hiding behind a smile. Now, when I reached out to you about this photo, you really struggled to find one here. I'd love for you to share what came up for you there and your thoughts about at that time in your life when you were hiding behind a smile. Well, I could give you a concoction of many photos. If you just go back maybe six years ago when we quit to my Instagram or something, you'll probably see like I naturally got a round face, but um, it was a melon of a head that I had. Same. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it looks like I'd eaten a couple of children. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, definitely it was like that for me. And um I can't find the photo, but I remember seeing a photo of me with a young support act um, who were happy to get their photo taken with me at the time. Um, and we'd stayed back and had a few drinks and just been chatting and been asking me questions and whatever. But I just looked at the photo and I saw these young, fresh-faced kids and this old dude, you know, like rock dog, sweaty and <laughs> clammy. And and I was like, ugh. And there's a few times like that. And um, it was just that alcohol bloat. Um, a lot of press photos from around that time were a bit like that. Um, and, um, yeah, it's not a good feeling, is it? Even at the time, you know, you would have, if you said that you blew up like that, you would have had that feeling of like you'd see pictures of yourself and you'd be like, oh, really? Is that what I've Yeah, it, it's really I've interesting. I actually, because I, I grew up performing musical theatre, I loved being on stage, I loved being in the spotlight and I loved my photo being taken and then it's really interesting to look back through my phone as I'm scrolling from the period of 2018 to 2020, which were my final two years of drinking, there is barely a photo to be found. And I just mm. kept getting bigger and bigger and more swollen and more puffy. And the other crazy thing I think when I look back on it now was just how comfortable I was in being uncomfortable. Like there wasn't, like the, I just didn't even have a sense that how I was feeling was not normal because I was mm. so used to just waking up every day feeling like crap, basically, with mm. a splitting headache, you know, puffy, bloated, red eyes, dry mouth. That was just my norm. And I'd mm. forgotten what it felt like. You know, I, I was drinking for 20 years. Like I just, I forgotten. I don't think I'd ever really experienced what it felt like to actually just live inside a clean, healthy body. But um, mm. a, a picture does tell a thousand words, doesn't it? And looking mm. back on the on the odd few photos that there are, I mean, my rehab intake photo is a perfect example. Like I'm just, and the crazy thing is, and, and the part of the reason I called this podcast Behind the Smile is that if you ever see this photo, I'll send it to you after we finish the interview today, Ash. <laughs> Danny's seen it, is that I, I'm smiling from ear to ear. And it was almost like this complete disassociation from reality like I just mm. was so programmed to keep smiling pretend everything's okay don't let everyone anyone know what's really going on and maybe I'll be able to trick myself into feeling better but it was never the case as long as I kept mm. point, putting this poison in my body and living the same groundhog cycle day in day out like it was just only going to get worse well yeah the thing is like you tell yourself different things at that time like you have realizations now but like I didn't I, I I don't know, with my drinking, I was always kind of conscious of it and always thought, oh, I remember thinking to myself, my life is pretty much perfect apart from the drinking. I'll, I'll, I must get onto that. And then, mm. you know, so I guess I was aware of it, but, like, I always prided myself on n never um, 
I never felt sorry for myself with a hangover. I thought, oh, I, I'm the one who did this to myself. So you're not allowed to feel sorry for yourself. So I'd get up for an early surf, yeah. force down a green juice or something like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I used to say detox, retox. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and I was more, I, was, I, I think I had a better diet when I was a drinker. Because Ooh, that's interesting, that, yeah. Yeah, because I was always trying to make up for something. So yeah. you know, I didn't. I never ate sweet things, and um, you know, and I tried to exercise a lot. And you think you're, and that's why, and that's interesting. If you if you're one of those people who's always trying to have balance, even when you are a big drinker, the good news is when you actually uh, stop the thing that's holding you back. It's like an elastic band's been pulling back and it gets let go and you really take off. I, I really felt in that first year I really, really took off because I didn't have the insane impediments that I had before. And, you know, I think that's something that people can who are big drinkers can be inspired by is like there's many people who are big drinkers who do achieve things in their life and do mm. have a good life in a lot of different ways. Well, those people, if you just do the same thing that you're doing now when you're drinking, but you don't drink, <laughs> you just take away drinking just by virtue of that, you end up on fire um, yeah. because you're not, I, I put a thing in my book is like, um, it's like you're trying to run up a mountain, but normally you don't realize it, but you've got rocks in your backpack. And mm. if you just take, get rid of the rocks in your backpack, you're just like, whoa, this is easier than I thought. <laughs> and and, and life is a lot easier than you thought sometimes when you're not drinking. Oh, I couldn't agree more. You don't, like I said, you don't realize how hard you're actually making it for yourself until yeah. you remove this one thing. And it's like all of a sudden everything is, is so much easier. And I think we start to lean into life and actually live a fulfilled life by design rather than just allowing life to happen to you. We're going to get to that a little bit later in the show because as you mentioned, that first 12 months for you in particular were like really inspiring and I definitely want to go there. But before we do, Ash, can you help me understand a little bit more? Like you just mentioned before, there's a lot of people who can be high functioning, drink a lot and still achieve a lot. And we see this particularly with musicians, like the idea of the rock star is that they they play hard, they work hard. What was it like being a touring musician all those years and having all of that alcohol and whatever else might have been around at that time? Um, well, I should say my attitude to alcohol was that it was part of music mm. and I always put the two together because actually when I grew up, I was like playing a lot of sport and doing just my family's really healthy, really straight. They're all sporting people. So I went off and did this. I broke my leg, um, playing, somebody broke my leg for me playing soccer and Oof. I sort of had aspirations in that area and so then that ambition and stuff went away from sport and went into my music in in my subconscious I think so that hard work drive was there and um, that's why when I ever meet a young musician and they say oh yeah I used to play you know netball at a high level or something I think oh okay cool they'll go well so they know how to work hard um, and so I wish I didn't do that tangent because I really put myself off there. Yeah, so <laughs> music was the badass thing for me and um, and drinking. And at that time also, this is 20 years ago, smoking cigarettes too was also in pubs and everything, so smoking went along with it too. And um, I just thought that was music. And I honestly, it's so dumb now when I think about it. I did not – it didn't occur to me that that's not – that doesn't have to be the case. And people who didn't drink, I thought, oh, that's a bit nerdy, but fair enough. Oh, well, I used to think, oh, well, at least they're healthy. Um, but I just thought that's not music. And a, a guy I met, I, I was in a duo with a guy in Melbourne and um, he said to me, oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, have a beer before you go to work as an accountant or something, you know, so I don't drink at gigs. And um, I thought, fair enough. Well, I'm off to get a beer from the bar. Like, yeah, yeah, this isn't work. This isn't work. <laughs> this is this is something completely different. And where the 
we're the wild musical people. We're not. And it was like an ethic to me. And yeah. so drinking and, and, and smoking and, you know, actually in the early days, if anyone offered me a joint in the set break of those early gigs too, I'd have that and then I'd come back and I'd be like all, you know, out of sorts on stage and, <laughs> you know. Mm. So I, that was one thing. So I gave that away after a while and, and started to try and pro up and it's like, okay, I'll just drink at the gigs. And then um, fast forward a couple of years, you know, I go touring around Australia for a couple of years and that was all good. Things get bigger and bigger, more party style. And then I start to have a sound guy on the road. And then there's somebody else who can drive after the gig. (laughs) And then you've got your band rider sitting in front of you, which at first was just like six Coopers and a a green tea. Okay, let me stop you there. What is, describe for the listeners, I've heard you and Danny talk about this, what is a rider? So the band rider is like, it's it usually, like there can be, like now I have soda water, alcohol-free beers and tea and coffee and a meal oh, and a fruit platter and um, and like a veggie platter. That's so awesome. So you've got like your heaps normal beers, you've got your green juices, all this healthy food. What a change. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so at one point the rider for me, and this is when I had, I did have band members to share it, but it was three bottles of spirits. So one guy drank Bundy, vodka we had, and uh, Jack Daniels, and then um, we'd have a slab of beer, and then we'd have red and white wine. Um, So... It became quite the writer. In fact, Danny came to a gig once and um, she walked into the band room and she saw the writer and she's like, is this what you guys have been doing on the road? <laughs> <laughs> and I changed it after that. I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're quite right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, let's pull it back to two bottles of spirits. <laughs> yeah, because I always tried to... Um, in the back of my mind, I was trying to control myself as well. I had purposely mm. kept the rider small, but we had a problem. Like we kept the rider small and we'd be doing, you know, good big gigs and it'd be sold out and whatever. And you think, okay, we've put X amount of people in your venue. So, and you normally the, the venue will just, if you say, oh, could we get a bottle of this? No problem. You know, we'd never make a a fuss but then a few venues said no that's not on the rider when we asked for a bottle of such and such so we went my sound guy went right stuff this we're having this 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 and everything that's why the rider ended up huge but um, honestly we thought it was part of a um some pact that you had with the venue and it was almost like it had some beyond practical some spiritual significance so then when um, I would do a gig that was at was um, like a festival that was run by a council or something and they didn't have a band rider I'd be like what is going on here this is just wrong I can't <laughs> I really, do this gig <laughs> yeah and, and I if you know me like I, I, I'm actually normally a very low fuss person and I don't demand things of anyone. So the fact, I don't know, the fact that I would be like, oh, this is just terrible. This is against music. Um, I can't believe they do this. And then yeah. I, at the end I was like, don't fight them. You know, when you know there's not going to be, just drop in at the bottle and do the right thing. Just do I'll do it myself. And, <laughs> and then I came unstuck from that a few times. I remember I had a massive blow up with a guy who ran the whole, I was headlining this, quite a decent size, smaller festival, a couple of thousand people. And I was headlining and um, I just went past the place. It's in Naruma in New South Wales. It was a blues festival. And I had a massive fight with the guy afterwards, not physical, but he was six foot five and he had two big um, Islander security guards with him. They met me on the steps to tell me off because I got little kids up onto the stage and um they were dancing to my one of my songs and it was a good vibe um and um he didn't like that and I I do think the guy was wrong about it but the point of that one was I was very drunk and um and I did abuse the shit out of him (laughs) um Mm. uh and uh, I was drinking tequila before that one um so (laughs) 
I, I we we've been working on a book, and so I've been really thinking about a lot of these things lately. And I realized that when you're a drinker, you know, when you you drank too much and you, you're putting it together the next day, like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Why did I drink so much? I feel like when you're a drinker and you're really used to it, you have a formula. Definitely as a muser, you have a formula. Like I dr you drink a certain drink and you drink a certain amount of it before you go on stage. And usually you're in reasonable shape on mm. stage. But if the formula changes, like in this case on that one, there was no rider and I had a friend of mine come along who liked, for weight reasons, drinking tequila. So then <laughs> he's like, that friend had made me come unstuck a few times for things like that. <laughs> um, one of those friends, yeah. Yeah, but you realise <laughs> that on your worst, because the reason I quit was for binge drinking, Um on your worst fuck-ups, um, do you swear on this podcast? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, on your worst fuck-ups, it's because something in the formula changed and it's like you can't, you've got, like you've got your normal way of doing it and you're powerless if something in the formula changes. Like mm. say if you're in a different situation, you might be somebody who, is going out for a few drinks, but a friend drops around beforehand and you have a few drinks, but with them and that changes the formula. It's almost like when you look back over that night, you're powerless, you were going to become unstuck, you know? So you, so you, you, you're not in, in, um, in a position to have any power over what happens. It's mm. really, it's really mm. weird. And I look over all of the times that I've come unstuck and that was always, and you always think, what the, why did I get, what, I'm an idiot, why did I get so drunk? But it's also hard for a drunk person to make a decision as to whether they should have another drink. Of course, right, because your sense <laughs> of rhyme and reason goes out the door. You're not thinking rationally or logically. And the other interesting point you make is that people who don't have a problem with alcohol don't struggle to make healthy decisions around how much alcohol they drink. <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah. it's really like if you're listening along nodding and you're like, yeah, this happens to me, then it's probably a sign that there may be some stuff there that you might want to look at, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're an alcoholic. You might just be a heavy drinker, but there are people I found out in sobriety who can have one or two drinks and then put the bottle away no matter what's going on. And that just blew my mind when I first realized that because I certainly could never do that. That was one of the biggest insights that I had, and it shocked the hell out of me. Um, I was, we were living in Bali, and um, like I would always have a few drinks in the um, lounge, and I'd always have a few drinks on the plane. There was never an exception. And um, in Bali, when there wasn't a lounge with free drinks, I would just go to a. I'm sorry, I would just go to a bar and get a few get a few drinks and then I started traveling back the year we quit and um, I saw other people like I saw a young couple you know the guy you know he's got lots of tats bintang top sort of vibe you know young couple they look like they're going to Kuda to have a party and they're going <laughs> to Bali and they're not drinking and I'm mm. like they're probably huh? thinking yeah and maybe they were thinking oh we'll have a couple when we get there, or maybe they didn't drink. But I looked around and I'm like, I thought everybody was just going for it. I thought maybe yeah. I drank a bit more. But people, they're not. Like sometimes they're not. They're not getting as drunk as you think they are. Yeah. And I had the same thing too with a friend um, I, when I was trying to be controlled and I'm sharing a bottle of wine and I'm just trying to, I, I was just thinking, I'll just match him. And you're like, this is frustrating. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah, this guy drinks so <laughs> slow. Yeah, what is he doing? I would think the exact same thing. Oh, my yeah, God, it's crazy. And you're like, even moderation things like Danny said to me, right, okay, well, maybe when you go out on tour, just have four drinks. <laughs> and then I'd try it and I'd be like, this is just frustrating. Yeah. You know, because it wasn't getting me where I needed to be. Well, you know, I wanted to have a shine on and four drinks just didn't do it anymore. My four drinks might have been a lot when I started. Yeah. Um, 
But if I didn't take stay take the stage with a certain level of something, you know, mm. then it didn't feel right. Mm. So and often I'm always I'm still to this day often tired on the road. Now, that's one of the mm. things about being a musician. You, it's like you know, if other people, you know, when you get home for a holiday from a holiday, you're like, that was awesome, but lots of travel. I'm tired. Well, that's how you are constantly when you're on the road as a musician. Yeah, of course. And you know, a pick me up. You know, I was drinking white wine with Red Bull in it. <laughs> and Ooh, so, <laughs> you, <laughs> hadn't tried that one before. <laughs> in a in a tall glass, uh, yeah, like half Red Bull, half wine. That was my little pick me up shandy kind of vibe, and sometimes red. <laughs> <with that. laughs> what a <laughs> what a concoction. Um, but you know, or you know, because obviously a Red Bull and vodka just always did the trick to get you. Mm. And anyway, you can just like change your state. Um, you would. And then when I had that hard and fast rule, okay, now I'm not drinking for a year. You know, it was the first of January, and it was like straight into like uh, wineries and breweries and that sort of stuff early January yeah. and you would think it would be a trigger. You know what? It wasn't even that hard because I, I couldn't believe it. It's like because I had to do it because I said I would, so I had to, um, and I had a pact with other people, so I really couldn't break it. Um, in my mind, it was just a hard and fast thing, and, like, I stepped on stage, did my gig. bit weird at first. You know, I'm a couple of gigs in after a while, and I'm realising, ah, oh, lo and behold, you don't have to have a certain amount of alcohol to get on stage. It's just you just get on stage. So it's almost like all that time I thought it was essential and it wasn't. It's crazy, isn't it, these core beliefs that we adopt and we never question and then all of a sudden you realise that, like, I thought the same thing. I was so fearful of having to attend my first wedding sober. I thought mm. this is going to be so painful, so uncomfortable. And, look, at points throughout the night it probably was. Mm. But I tell you what, that sense of being able to drive myself home, get my head on the pillow sober and wake up the next day without a hangover, like that was so, so worth it. And I got to be fully present. You know, I've been to dozens of weddings in my lifetime and I can't say I've been present for many of them. So, mm. you know, you've just got to look at the positives. What are you actually getting out of the situation as opposed to what you're having to give up? So as she mentioned, the 1st of January 2018, that was the day that you and Danny made a pact to go sober for 12 months. Was there any catalyst that led up to that or what was the turning point for you? Um, I had been drinking more and more. Um and came unstuck probably a few times and then I was like, okay, right, I won't drink at gigs. So I was already doing that mm -hmm. and um, that wasn't too bad. And um, Danny's friend mentioned that she was thinking of quitting for a year and I was like, oh, that's out of hand. I think not drinking at gigs is good enough. And then lo and behold, she gave the idea to Danny. I'm like, yeah, oh, no. And I was like, <laughs> at, I think at first I was like, okay, well, you do it if you want. And then I was like, oh, I'm pretty much worse than her. Um, how is it going to work that it's not going to work, me drinking and her not drinking? Um, so, okay, damn it, I'll do it. And I sort of went along with it. So I was... You know, it was partly to support Danny and partly because, but I think it was more self-interested. It was also like, she's just going to be on to me if she's not drinking. And any time mm. I'm like a little bit, because we used to try to act not drunk to each other on the phone. <laughs> and sometimes she'd end up abusing me. <laughs> like late at night, I'd be like, rawr, rawr, and she'd be like, yeah. you sort of like, I'm all right. How, how are you? That's a weird trying to be sober thing. Yeah, um, I can so relate. <laughs> and I was like, that's not going to work. Um, mm. So I sort of, I was sort of, okay, you know, here we go. So in my mind, though, it was like, okay, if we're doing this, sort of semi-reluctantly doing it, but like, mm, okay, it's about time. And, um, yeah, so once I do it, did it, I knew it was a commitment for a year and there was no discussion of 
breaking it. I think mm. there was one time in Margaret River, you know, good wine region by the fire that Danny was feeling weak that she remembers. That was where she's like sort of gave me that cheeky look like maybe kind of thing. But I was like pretty resolute by that time because I, yeah, I just like, I just thought, nah, you promise yourself that you'd just make it. And I was always going to drink after it. Um, I was going to drink at Christmas. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's one of my questions. Like, let's let's point out the facts. This was five, over five and a half years ago, and yeah. you're still sober. So, I mean, what happened after that twelve months? Yeah, I mean, I was always going to drink, and then it had been so good. And Danny started to say that she wasn't going to, and I was like, "Well, that's fine, but that's not the agreement I made." And um, I'm definitely going to drink. But then it came around and I was like, mm, I really don't. Like all of the things that I've got from this and it, it was very transformative, um, quitting and some really great things started to happen in my career and sobriety was a massive part of it. And I was like, wow, you know, there definitely is a, a risk. It's definitely far from zero the risk that you would find yourself at some point back where you started at some point drinking too much not not that i felt like i was going to race out and get a bottle of whiskey and get so drunk but like probably well in reality probably if i was going to break it i'd go well i might as well experience being drunk so probably mm. maybe i would have um mm. it just wasn't worth the risk that um of all those things, you know, that I'd, I'd got from quitting and even um, our relationship and Dan, I know Danny's got and, you know, then she started how I quit alcohol and everything. There's so many different things. Um, yeah, it's just not worth it. And I think if, if people are quitting now or they're, they're, they're in that questioning phase, you can always think to yourself too, like I've had you know, whether I should or shouldn't drink, I've already experienced what it's like to drink. <laughs> Quite given a bit. it a nudge. I've yeah. given it a nudge. I've, <laughs> it's probably, I've left very few stones unturned. So well-researched. It's well-researched. Well <laughs> so it's not like you're losing anything. You already know what's on the side, the other side of that. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's why I decided to stay sober. That's so awesome. Well done. Ash, can we go back to that first year? Because as you described it, like you were on fire and I've heard you talk before about how it was almost like you found your superpower. And I know that that first 12 months for both you and Danny, there was a deep dive into personal development. And for you, this really had an incredible ripple effect into your career. Oh, Can you? Yeah, it's like so cool. One thing I'd love to talk more about here is the role that manifestation and intention setting had in this trajectory for you. Like I know that you started journaling and writing every day. So what did that look like and what came out of that for you? Well, I can't say enough how awesome the manifesting stuff is and how great it was. And it's fun too. Um, you know, I've always uh, seen myself as a very logical person and um, when The Secret came out, I didn't really like it because I saw people um, looking in and manifesting diamond. Do you remember The Secret? <laughs> yes, you... it was a bit cringe, wasn't Yeah, it was it? very cringe. And yeah. um, putting diamond necklaces on and stuff, and I thought, what a load of shit that is. <laughs> um, and then I just had this realisation um, that, I wanted something better to happen in my life. There's certain things I wanted to happen career-wise and otherwise. And I thought um, I'd rather, I just want some help. I don't really care whether it's something that I can convince somebody at a barbecue that it's great. You know, like I, I feel like sometimes in my mind, it's sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to get into things that we consider woo-woo, not because of what we think, but because we couldn't imagine convincing somebody at a barbecue that, it's, you know, mm -hmm. you self-censor a lot of times. And um, I thought, well, I'm just going to go with this and see if it works. And in my experience, it did work. And of 
I was writing a book at the time and um, I ended up interviewing Steph Gilmore, who's, you know, I think she's won eight world titles now, like by far the queen of surfing, the whole surfing world. Um, And um, just an amazing human and a great guitarist too. Um, And she was saying that she used the manifesting stuff heaps and she said Kelly Slater did as well. And I didn't ask Kelly about that stuff um, because I interviewed him as well. But, you know, even that was part of this thing, like this manifesting thing, like so many good things came about from just trying trying to manifest something. Um, I started with something audacious, which was selling out the forum in Melbourne, um, which I was a long way away from and now I feel a long way away from it as well but <laughs> um, I I did dare to man- to try to manifest that and I actually did end up doing that in a duo with Josh Teske who's now just yeah. Red Rocks and yeah, they've wow. gone on to such giant things but they were already huge and um, I think that's one of those things that people like Joe Dispenza talk about and a lot of different people in that world of setting intentions is just it's not your job to work out how it's going to happen. Just decide what you want to happen and work towards that and see what life and be open to what life puts in front of you. And in that example, I was open to what more open than normal to what to the opportunities and to what life could put in front of me. And it was that openness that probably led us, Josh and I, to do an album together and things to work out and do those gigs. And, you know, that was insane and and an insane point in my career. And um, I think when you try and manifest something really great in your life, it's a north star for you or it's 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 a it's a point to work towards anyway so like it's good for you anyway um like say if you're on your sobriety journey some people um who find it boring it's it's also because they're just living the exact same life that they led while they were drinking which had become a little less driven and a little less oriented towards any specific goals because that's what drinking does to you when you're just partying all the time you lose focus and Mm. i like to think of the metaphor of like a sailing ship you could have a great sailing ship it's got everything right and the sails are up but there's no one holding the wheel and pointing it in a direction and then it'll inevitably just drift around until it hits the rocks you know yeah i think human beings we work best when we're heading in a direction And in Mm. some ways, it doesn't matter what the direction is, like whatever interests you, work towards something, you know, and, you know, it it could be knitting. It could be anything. Uh, Like, and you, your body, it's much more easy to orient yourself and work in in, when you're working in a particular direction. Um, So I think it's good for happiness. And I, you know, mm. like in my book, I was talking about getting out of a rut, which is essentially what I did. And I don't think you can be in a rut when you're learning something new. So, yeah, such a good point. Mm, so, if you actually set a, a goal and you're pursuing it just happily, knowing that you're going to get there, um, you work away at the new things that you need to do. And you've got a project in life that you're working on. And um, it it just it organizes your life for you in a way, mm. and um, that mm. makes that definitely makes you happier. Mm. I have to mention for anyone listening along, the book is called Surf by Day, Jam by Night, and it's a brilliant book. So I'll make sure I pop that in the episode show notes for anyone that wants to check that out. Tell me, with the manifesting on a practical level, if somebody's listening along and, like you said, they're thinking, "Oh, that sounds a bit woo woo," like. What did you actually do to manifest this? Well, I I set that uh, audacious goal, of course, and then I set about achieving it and, and I didn't know how you would achieve it um, for me. So at the time, um, I just went for 
okay, well, if it was going to happen, how could I make it happen? And then I just used my imagination because it just didn't seem possible at all. Um, mm. And I thought, well, um, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm getting older now. I'm like an old bluesy guy. Okay, I'll become a shredder guitarist then because that's what, you know, people still, to play the forum, you know, there's a, there's a guy called Joe Bonamassa who's like an American guy, just a shredder guitarist, and he still pulls about a 1,000 people in Australia um, or maybe more, I'm not exactly sure, but lots and could do a forum kind of gig. So I, um, I just worked away on, okay, I'll become a shredder guitarist, which was a million miles away from my guitaring ability. So I was practicing about four hours a day and wow. um, getting guitar lessons from somebody there in Bali and just going super hard on it. And I was writing my book at the same time. Um, so also there's other practicalities to that. Um, I use those I am statements a lot. Um, mm. Also part of that, I thought, oh, you've got to be fit and look good and look healthy and um, be be healthy. So it just made me really disciplined because I was doing the I am. So I was saying I am a... I can't remember the exact phrase. It would be an audacious thing. These things are almost embarrassing to say, um, but it's using them as a technique, you know, like to, to if you can say it as an I am statement, your goal, then you're convincing your subconscious that it's already happened and that it's a present thing. And then your subconscious goes about making it happen. So your subconscious will help you basically mean that you're not bullshitting yourself. Like, mm. let's make this happen. So like then catching you, up. You will catch up, yeah. yeah. And it just really does work really well. So, like, you know, whenever I'm feeling a little unfit, I do, I'm just reminding myself of this now because I let this go, but I did it that first year and I, I was getting pretty six-pack close at the time. Um, nice. Because I wanted, <laughs> which is hard. Um, you yeah. Know, I lost about 10 kilos and I put on a lot of muscle and stuff. Um, but I was writing, I am, what was it? This isn't really present tense, but it works for me. I am building the body of a superhero. So yeah. then if you write that out every day, then you just, you really, you, you watch what you eat. I was fasting till two. I'd get up and we're living in Bali, so the surf is really good. So I'd surf hard, challenging waves. Then I would... Um, then I would go to the gym and I also did a hundred push-ups and a hundred sit-ups and 30 chin-ups every day. <laughs> and I'd Wow. And, and the technology, here's the technology that I used to do all those push-ups. And I still do this now, actually. Um, I reckon this is the best fitness technology. This is the best fitness thing you can get. Because when I was doing my IMs, there's other things I was doing as well, but um, I would write push. And then every time I did 20 um, push-ups, I'd do a little line and I had to do five of them and cross it out. It was just... Oh, awesome. I love that. Yeah. And I'd do push, pull, sit. Um, so sit-ups, push-ups, pull. Um, med, which is meditation, which I'd always skip. <laughs> but I do more of it now. Um, I'd do Wim because I was into Wim Hof. So I'd do the Wim Hof mm, breathing just once breathing. a day. Um and I did I am's. I also did gratitudes every day. So I'd write I am and I'd write grat. And I do think that um, that gratitude is also the fuel of optimism. Um, and op optimism is very integral to reaching these amazing things. So um, for you not to, you know, for you not to feel like you're just bullshitting yourself, you have to realize the truth of how far you've already come. And it's it's usually staring you right in the face, but we're just used to ignoring it. Um, mm. So when you write um, gratitude statements, um, what you're grateful for, you could fill a page, you could fill a book probably. Um, there's so much. And, and the things that you write, you think, oh, for my health and you're like oh that's a boring one i take that for granted well don't take it for granted you know my dad's no. just come out of hospital you know like you're not bullshitting yourself what you're doing is stopping bullshitting yourself you're yeah. seeing things as they are for the first time in your life because they really are that way when you write those gratitude statements um so you're mm. realizing oh my god this is how far this is how good it really is 
Mm. And realizing that is half of the battle because that really gets you into that. I don't know if it's that vibration. I don't want to use too many buzzwords, but it gets you into that positive frame of mind, which is what you need to go to achieve better things in your life. But when you get in that positive frame of mind that allows you to achieve those things, um, it's a good feeling anyway. Yeah. So yeah. if all you ever did is felt, felt those feelings and acted in that way, you would still have, by the time you finish your life, you would still have felt great in your life, so not wasted your life, and been nice to all the people around you because you're feeling good and you feel mm. and inspired people around you. And in the end, the goal matters less than mm. having that feeling every day. And um, then for sober people, you're realizing why you quit in the first place. Like you're like, oh, my God, I feel great every day now as opposed to how I felt before. And I think these mm. things are really important for your sobriety because, like I said before, if you don't do those things, then you're, you might have quit alcohol, but you're still sitting in stagnant kind of energy or like you're still mm. just, you know, you could still be a boring person. <laughs> yeah, a sober, sober. miserable person. <laughs> a sober, boring person. You know, that's what most drinkers call sober people. Oh, you're boring. That's what I used to think. So you will be making those drinkers um, correct in their assessment if you, if you don't, you know, make your life improve in some way. And I think those manifesting things do really help. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think you've highlighted so perfectly the power of mindset and it's this whole idea of where we focus our attention, that's where we we have abundance. And so if you're thinking about positive things, if you're showing up for yourself, you're building your self-esteem, like it all adds little by little, layer by layer, and you start to carve out the person that you had the potential to be all along, but you were never reaching that because you were drowning it with alcohol or drugs or whatever it is for whoever's listening along. So thank you for sharing that. You've inspired me. I'm going to get my journal out and, and start writing because I think that's just so super cool. Awesome. Ash, I think it's really important. We, we, we all, we're all very good at talking about the good times and how much sobriety has changed our lives for the better. And that I think that's an important message. But there are also challenging times. And I've heard you talk about these challenging times in a way that I just thought was so helpful. So I'd like to actually quote you if that's okay. You said that in regards to these challenging times, that you get to choose the context and the significance of these challenges. What did you mean by that? Well, I remember saying something very similar to that when we all got locked down originally in 2020, I guess that was, um, is like life throws things at you and you don't have a power to change them at all. Um, big things. But you do have the power to change the context in which you see that, so yourself in relation to that. And that's the most important thing because that's, that's the bit you can change. Yeah. Um, and um, also perspective is everything because you're the one that decide. like you're the one that is having the experience. So how you perceive the experience, like, for example, two people, they both quit alcohol. They're both sitting there. One says, it's fantastic that I quit alcohol. It's the best thing that ever happens to me. The other person, having had the exact same thing, says it's the worst thing in the world. You know, it's terrible and I've had to quit so many, you know, so it's so hard. I can't have a beer in the hot sun. Or but You're making it harder for yourself. Yeah. Like, if you've decided that, for example, with sobriety, if you've decided, okay, I better quit, this is the best thing for me, you can, you can decide whether that's a trial and that's really hard or you can also just say, hey, sometimes I have challenges with it but that's all part of the journey and, and it's for the best. I decided this for a reason. Mm. So it is something I can do. And I used to say to how I quit alcohol people, act as if it's easy, like it doesn't yeah. literally mean that it's easy, but you can say to yourself, it's easy not to pick up 
a glass and go that has alcohol in it. Like when you first quit, that's your only job is to (laughs) just not go. And like people say, oh, you know, I'm having cravings or I'm, or this, or I'm having thoughts of having a beer on a nice day, or I'm having thoughts of a wedding that's coming up or whatever. Well, it's fine to have thoughts. You know, the thoughts aren't going to jump up and attack you and, you know, make you drink. You don't have to not have the thoughts. You just have Mm -hmm. to not go, (laughs) you just have to not drink the substance that's in that alcoholic beverage container. That's your only job at first. And, um, I think sometimes people create suffering by thinking, oh, I shouldn't have a craving or I shouldn't think about alcohol. But it's the context that you give it, you know. So I I would say if you have a bit more of a positive attitude to these kind of things, you make it easier for yourself to enjoy Mm. your life. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of that whole saying, perception is projection. And really, Ah. like we we have a choice to make. And and I think having that more positive outlook does make things easier. Thank you for sharing that. Ash, there is one final question that I love to finish up with all my guests. And I'm going to ask that now. The question is, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live your life today, happy, joyous, and free? Mm. Let me, what are yours? Oh, that's a good question. So (laughs) prayer and meditation. I start my day every day with prayer and meditation, therapy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and connection, Mm. connection with others. Mm. I would say, should I be 100% transparent? I think I will. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So... So the stuff that I just said then that I've said in this interview, the stuff with the IMs, um, the meditation, which I've been really getting into a lot of Joe Dispenza lately meditations because Danny's on fire with that stuff and that's been awesome. A lot of the things that I mentioned that I would write, uh, I left a few out, but um, writing in that journal every day is an absolute must. And all I need to do to be on fire in my life is to do that. Yeah. I don't always do it. <laughs> That's my confession. Life gets in the way, right? So, yeah. And um, uh, there was a sort of 80s um, motivational guy called Jim Rohn who is really, he just has some great one-liners. He's on YouTube. And he said, a lot of this stuff, it's easy to do because it's not that hard. Like, that journaling is 10 minutes probably max. So it's easy to do. Mm. Only problem is it's easy not to. <laughs> and so, Ain't that the truth? Yeah. So the actual key is to not neglect the easy things that you know you should do. Don't neglect those. easy. They're easy to do. Mm. So don't neglect them. If you don't neglect them, then you, you'll have awesomeness and it's not that hard to do. But if you do neglect them, then you fall into old habits. So I found that with like my weight and stuff because like I lost 10 kilos when I um, quit drinking, but I put 10 back on over, you know, since kind of COVID and went back to this mm. weight that I always seem to go back to. <laughs> Um, and that's a good example because I know I could lose that weight easy. But yeah, you've proven I, it to yourself. And I've proven it to myself. But um, but sometimes I neglect those things that are easy. So, you know, I reckon probably this is the non-negotiable, the pen and just writing in that journal. And mm. I think it all springs from that actually. And I don't think there's been you know, you can find the journals of Da Vinci and Tesla and all these characters throughout history because the greats always seem to journal. So yeah. I think that is that is probably the biggest must and then other musts come out of that once you start. Because once you start writing, you start talking to your subconscious and your subconscious 
carries out those things generally. So yeah. um, I think that's rather than being three, I think it's one for me. I love that. I mm. love that. Mm. And I think it's keeping it as one. I think anyone listening along today can be like, you know what, I'm going to try that. I'm going to start implementing that. And I'd love for people to share how they go with it. 100%. Ash, as I mentioned, you're a busy man. You're currently on tour. If people want to come see you play, check you out, get a hold of your new music, where can they go? Uh, yeah, just ashgrunewell.com or any of the socials and it's all there. Awesome. I'll make sure I pop all of that info in the episode show notes. Ash, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so, so much for joining me here today. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Me too. Awesome. Thanks, Legend. Bye. Thank you. Bye. A big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by hitting the follow button and leaving a rating and review. Each rating and review helps this podcast become more discoverable so more people can hear these stories of strength and hope. Together, we will continue to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma and addiction. Remember to reach out to those you care about and I'll be back next week. Until then.